how fraud might be perpetrated by presenting inaccurate or incomplete disclosures, how management and internal how management and the audit committee respond to inquiries about possible illegal acts if the audit firm senses something is fishy and asks the audit committee. That was Matt Kelly. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds, the only compliance podcast to take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds on a compliance topic or issue. Today, we do that around SOX compliance, looking at key issues for SOX compliance, PCAOB audit inspection priorities for 2023, and lawsuits for financial fraud accounting failures. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome back, Matt. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Matt, you had an occasion to think and then write about some socks compliance, SOX reporting, and SOX internal audit issues. So could you tell us about initially the post you put up last week? Yeah, well, we got a a bunch going on now with SOX compliance for the moment. One was a webinar that I attended last week hosted by RSM, the accounting firm. They were doing a retrospective of corporate audits that have largely just wrapped up. If you are a calendar year-end company, then your fiscal year ended December 31st. You then went into your annual audit in early spring, late winter, January, February, March. And now that those audits are generally done, there's a lot of material coming about out about what these audits this year said about SOX compliance, that compliance officers, internal auditors, financial compliance people that they will want to keep in mind for the future around internal control over financial reporting. We had that. The next day, I think it was last week, Cornerstone Research published a study of class action lawsuits related to accounting issues. So the key takeaway there is that if your internal controls are bad and your company gets sued for accounting fraud, a restatement, or even just disclosing material weakness, what would that cost the company to defend itself, to settle? What are the settlement amounts? How many lawsuits are happening? None of those numbers are going in the right direction for SOX compliance officers. And then, Tom, just earlier today, the PCAOB, the regulator for audit firms, they released their list of priorities for their inspections this coming, the remainder of 2023, for the audits that have just now wrapped up. So now the PCAOB inspectors are going to go look at those audits, see how they did, and what are they going to be looking for. They published a list of their big priorities for the inspection season that is starting now and will probably taper off in late in the fall. So there's a lot going on, a lot of it related to internal control over financial reporting, and it does have a lot of connections to good internal controls for FCPA compliance, certainly a lot to think about, about good financial reporting and accounting fraud. And there's just, there's a lot of news happening right now around SOX compliance issues. 
Matt, in the RSM webinar and your attendant blog post on it, you took a look at some of the discussions around IT controls. What did you see around IT controls that you found either so interesting or perhaps so troubling? A little bit of both. They were interesting and troubling, but I think, you know, the key message from the RSM speakers was simply that a lot of what SOX compliance is right now, a lot of what auditors are looking at relates to IT controls. Now, why wouldn't that be true? Because we now depend on IT so much to run corporate financial systems. So that really raises the stakes for how accurate are these financial systems, these applications that you use. Maybe it's SAP or Oracle. Maybe it is some homegrown solution your IT department has cooked up on its own. Maybe it is some other financial application you bought from another vendor. But the auditor has to think through how reliable is that application? How do we know it's reliable? How do we know that the software code provided by the vendor hasn't been tampered with? How do we know that it works? How do you, company, know that the software system works? How did you look at that code? And what evidence do you have to be able to give to the auditor to say, this is what the IT is for our financial system, and this is how we know it is safe and secure, and the integrity of the financial system is sufficient? I suppose that would be the big catchword there is integrity. You know, we talk a lot about cybersecurity and are people coming in to hack into the system, to steal data, to alter financial data, to transfer money. All of that, you know, it will largely depend on how strong is the software code. So RSM spent a lot of time talking about things like non-configurable IT controls. A non-configurable control would be just as the name complies that it can't be changed. You've bought something from the vendor, it runs your accounting system, and nobody at your company has the ability to go in and manipulate that application. You can't reconfigure it to do something else that might be fraudulent or untoward. How do you prove that? You know, you would have to think through what are the interconnections between your financial processes and your IT systems? What if one IT system is used in multiple ways, and so there are maybe like one control that serves multiple purposes. How do you know that it only serves those controls or those purposes, those items on the financial statements? If the control failed in one place, does that mean it failed everything else? Technically, the answer is no, not necessarily, but if you're an auditor, you're looking at the company saying, okay, well, you had a control to govern revenue and cash flow and, a, um, I don't know, allowances for loss receivables. You had one control that governed all of that. We just saw that it failed on the revenue side. How do we know it didn't fail all the other line items it supposedly generates for you? How do you prove that? Those are the sorts of things that you have to think about. <clears throat> we could really get lost into the true weeds if we wanted to talk about all of the ways that IT controls do or don't work well. But I think the big takeaway for most people is going to be that we rely so much on IT now to run the accounting system, the accounts payable, the finance function. A lot of what you need to assure a strong accounting system is really how are you governing the software that is 
running those those apps. Matt, you drew, or I guess the webinar drew, an interesting line from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank to internal audit and to SOX controls around finances, financial controls. Could you explain that line and why companies may need to look at this after the failure of SVB? Yeah, this is really interesting because a lot of companies might think, well, I'm not a bank. And I didn't do anything with SVB. I'm, you know, we're not SVB. We don't have to worry about whatever a Silicon Valley Bank went through. That's not necessarily true, because if you are a large company, you might have multiple bank accounts. Especially if you are a global company, you almost inevitably have multiple bank accounts at banks around the world. Now, what's going to happen is a rise in phishing attacks from attackers who will maybe target somebody in your accounting system to say, hey, I'm one of your vendors. We were a customer of Silicon Valley Bank, and now we're switching banks. So could you please reprogram our account details for this vendor here that I'm claiming to be? Could you please redirect all payments to this other new account that we've created? That's going to happen. That is happening, is that There are attackers pretending to be your vendors saying that they need to change their bank account information with your company so that you can now pay, make payments to another system because they were they were using some bank that has since failed. How are you going to intercept that? How are you going to realize that that is bogus? How are you going to realize that maybe the vendor they're claiming to be is bogus? Maybe they're claiming to be a legitimate vendor you have. But they're saying, well, we were a Silicon Valley Bank customer, and that's not true. The vendor was never an SVB customer. Or they're saying, please redirect all future payments to, you know, Bank of Joe in the Seychelles. You know, how are you going to find out that that is a fraudulent bank account? What are your processes for that? There's a couple of different ways you could do it. If you're really ambitious, one way that RSM suggested was you could even reprogram how vendors interact with your accounts payable, that they would log into a portal that your company maintains, and they would update their own banking information. They would not actually call the AP company and talk to a clerk, and then they dupe them into submitting payments to some other bank. You're going to have to do that all by themselves, which means only a legitimate vendor would know how to get onto the portal. That, however, assumes that you've got strong cybersecurity and strong access controls around getting into that portal. So, you know, you're trying to barter here. Do we want to reduce our phishing risks and risks of, I guess you'd call it vendor fraud, but we're going to have to push up our need for strong access control and cybersecurity controls. It's kind of one and the other, back and forth. But, it, you know, you're going to see challenges like that. Also, secondary issue that RSM mentioned is that at least in theory, if you are going to change some of your banking relationships, say you are and you were a Silicon Valley Bank customer or a customer of, I don't know, Western Alliance or Schwab or First Republic or some of the other banks that are taking it in the teeth these days, you know, if you're going to change your banking relationships because you are with a mid-sized bank that's shaky... Is that something that needs to be disclosed? Um, I I don't know the answer to that. 
I think a lot of accounting people would not know the answer to that. Your legal team would know much better. Is this something material that should be disclosed in the 8K or the 10Q? So you need to be sure that if you're changing your banks, you know, you've got the disclosure team looped into that fact so they can say, yes, this should be disclosed. No, it's not a big deal. But those are some of the ways that this banking instability is also affecting your fraud risk and therefore your ICFR issues. Matt, you had another post which looked at the issue of shareholder or other lawsuits alleging material weakness, accounting fraud, or other issues related to SOX compliance, in addition to the legal requirement for internal audit or audit of SOX controls, why is it sort of a good business investment to have that audit run, and how can that help uh, perhaps not prevent a lawsuit from being filed, but at the end of the day, reduce legal costs and even a settlement amount? Well, you know, it helps because it is mighty expensive to get sued for poor internal control over financial reporting these days. So this was the report that came out, I think, the next day after the RSM webinar. But it came out from Cornerstone Research, which tracks class action lawsuits on various sorts of issues. They've been doing this for a long time. So they put out a study looking at class action lawsuits being filed and being settled specifically over accounting issues. So that's a restatement, that's fraud, that's um, disclosing a material weakness in the 10K or the 10Q, and some other related sorts of issues. But it's weak accounting controls. So the median settlement in 2022 for these class action lawsuits nearly doubled. It was $8.1 million in 2021, and it was $15.5 million in 2022. The total number of filings, new filings in 2022 for settlements that I guess, Tom, you and I will talk about in another couple of years, those numbers also jumped. There were 46 such lawsuits last year. They're in 2021. I'm sorry. There were 51 of them in 2022. So that's a appreciable but not huge increase in the number of filings. But, Tom, I think the bigger picture here is that class action lawsuits trailed down generally over the last couple of years in 2021, 2022, compared to prior years. Now, think that through. Why is that? Number one, because the stock market was doing great. And who's going to sue a company for having a great share price? Nobody. But you disclose something that's ugly, the share price goes down. And then suddenly everybody's up in your face and they're ready to sue you for all sorts of stuff. Also, during the pandemic, court operations were disrupted. And yes, I appreciate that there were virtual lawsuits being filed online, but that's not the same as the ease of previous years, pre-pandemic courtroom operations. Now, the pandemic is largely gone. The courtrooms are back open and the stock market really kind of sucked in 2022. It's not doing a whole lot better this year. So I do think that we're, conditions are now ripe for more investors to be unhappy over declining share prices. And we're going to see more people coughing up you know, unpleasant truths about their operations. And that's going to lead to more lawsuits. And those are expensive. 
They're expensive on the settlement side, and they're expensive on the legal side. It can routinely take several years to settle these class action lawsuits. Some law firm somewhere is billing you hundreds of dollars an hour, at least, to defend against these lawsuits. Even if you settle, you still have these, you know, one, two, three, four years or more of litigation costs, and none of that is going to be cheaper than just having good, strong internal accounting controls from the start. Matt, the PCAOB also formalized with an announcement there um, inspection priorities. This is something they had previously uh, indicated, and indeed we did a podcast on it. But did you see what did you see in their list of 2023 inspection priorities? Well, I'll stick with some of the the mainstays, the always theirs in PCAOB inspection priorities. They put out these lists on a fairly regular basis. And some of them, their issues are always there. They're always worried about fraud risk. They're always inspecting for risk assessments and internal control. They're always looking at an audit firm's use of other auditors. And all of this, they're not inspecting your internal controls, listeners at corporations. They're looking at and inspecting your audit firms and the audits those firms did of your operations and your internal controls. Still, it's advice once removed for the corporate internal audit team or internal control officer. Because if you understand the pressure that the PCAOB is applying to your audit firm, you can then anticipate the what your audit firm is going to demand for evidence or testing or all the other stuff that audit firms do that drive you crazy. You wonder where is this coming from? This is where it comes from. And so you can read that and get a sense of it and get ahead of it. But I was really interested in some of the issues around fraud risk that the PCAOB had flagged. So they are looking at audit firms and how audit firms are thinking through things like the design of internal controls around management override and the threat of management override, how fraud might be perpetrated by presenting inaccurate or incomplete disclosures, how management and internal audit, how management and the audit committee respond to inquiries about possible illegal acts if the audit firm senses something is fishy and asks the audit committee what is this or they ask the CFO what is this how do they handle that are they forthright are they cagey do they shut the audit firm down whether the business purpose of an unusual transaction has been properly documented or might it be fraudulent. And we can go on from there, but a lot there are five particular issues that the PCAOB said it would be looking at in audit inspections. And all five of them, compliance officer could look at those things and say, okay, yeah, I get how that would relate to my internal controls. Um, Tom, you and I have talked about the risk of management override and the need for strong documentation, I don't know, a half a dozen times over the years. And here it is, the uh, PCAOB is asking the audit firm, how do you look at that issue when you're dealing with the client? Or, you know, what is the business purpose for an unusual transaction? And how does the audit firm get some assurance and confidence over that? In FCPA land, we have talked about unusual transactions and the need to demonstrate a legitimate business purpose with some third party. Tom, again, you and I have probably talked about that a hundred times over the years. So you can look at these five ways the PCAOB is thinking about fraud risk, and you could then say, all right, 
This connects to the internal controls and policies I have here, the processes I have here. I'm prepared for it when my audit firm now comes and asks me about it because the PCAOB inspectors are getting on their case. Probably nothing personal against you, internal audit executive, but it's just that's the pressure the audit firms are feeling. And you can look at this guidance and you can anticipate that and reverse engineer ways to get through that pain with your auditor in a more expeditious way. I guess, Matt, when I read your post, I had two thoughts. One was, we're back to the future. Uh, The second was, perhaps the PCAOB was reprioritizing what used to be called priorities. Uh, Because as you said, these seem to be, I don't want to say as basic as it gets, but standard um, items that auditors need to look at that they've known at least since we've been in this arena. Well, you, you have to think about it from the PCAOB's perspective, is that the big external environment that drives companies and individuals to commit fraud, I would say that's changed. If your share price has gone way down and you're a CFO looking at an equity stock award that suddenly is upside down on the numbers and it's worthless, maybe you're going to be tempted to engage in a bit more fraudulent behavior. So an audit firm might need to anticipate that. And the PCAOB is probably going to be paying more attention to that external change. You might be SPAC company, that's something else that came up in the priority list, is that you might be a SPAC firm that de-SPAC'd into an operating company in 2022. But the fact is, a lot of these companies have no idea what they're doing because they never should have gone public. But a SPAC sponsor was showering cash on them, so they did it. Now they're public. They don't have the anti-fraud procedures yet in place. They don't have the board that's ready to be able to handle this. So I think that the PCAOB is aware the external environment for fraud might be a bit more tempting to some companies and executives out there. They're trying to make sure that the audit firms also get that perception, that change in atmosphere. They can detect it. They can smell it. And they are changing their audit procedures appropriately. Um, So that's probably why they're talking so much about it. I was just struck at how readily apparent it is that these fraud risk issues can really tie back to internal controls and policies and procedures, tone at the top and control environment that most companies, you're right, Tom, you're like, you should have all of this in place already anyways. Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration of a variety of angles on SOX, SOX audit, internal auditors and controls. And it was, I guess, the other thing that struck me is how we're really you were able to weave all of these together from a variety of sources to, I think it's hearing reprioritize your prior priorities. And now the regulators are reprioritizing their priorities. So uh, I think we're going to get to revisit this topic again. Everything old is new again. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Into the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and for best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Awards. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you thought about 
starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either uh, help you produce your podcast or put you on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.